This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Well, good morning, New Life. Hope you're doing good. Uh, We're going to be talking today about the racial tensions that are going on in our country. And man, I I really think it's important that we take a moment and just pause and, and acknowledge the reality of what's going on. And then seek to understand what God would desire from us, what, what Jesus would actually want from us, and how we respond in this time. What I'm becoming incredibly aware of is it's possible for people to actually share the same space together, but have two totally different experiences. One thinking life is good and the other saying this is not good. I experienced this idea years ago when our family was at Disneyland and we took our oldest daughter, Indy, on Roaring Rapids. She was just a little kid at the time, maybe like three years old. And so we all get on the ride to have this great adventure together and the ride sets off. And we know we're probably going to get wet, but we don't know who's going to get wet. And there's other people on the boat with us and the ride just starts its wobbly way through the rapids and spinning. And then we suddenly see the waterfall coming up and we're like, oh no, here it goes. And the, the boat starts to spin and it spun perfectly so that only one person got soaked and it was little Indy, three-year-old Indy. And everyone kind of gets through the other side of that and we all look at each other like, yeah, we made it, no one got wet, except Indy who is now soaked and just kind of looking confused and somewhat in horror at what she's experiencing in this ride. And and so it's like, it's gonna be okay, it was just an accident, it was a fluke, like someone's gonna get wet next time. And so the next waterfall comes up and it's just randomly spinning again. It happens to her a second time. Every one of us, dry, as a bone and she gets soaked and the ride continues we get to the end of that ride there's only one person soaking wet and it's Indy the rest of us had a great time we're not wet we get off the ride everyone's like cheering high-fiving and I look at her and she's sobbing see we were sharing the same space but she had a radically different experience than the rest of us and see, I think when we turn the news on and we see the, the problems in our world right now, when we see the posts about the, the injustices that are taking place, when we watch the videos of outcry and injustice and, and wanting help, I think what we're beginning to see is that there's a whole segment of our country that is having a totally different experience than many of us when it comes to living here as Americans. See, that, that racism that we're seeing, it's alive. It's, it's active in our world today. It's active in our country. It's active in our city. Despite whatever social progress we've thought we've made so far. And I think we have to just be willing to say at a minimum, this is wrong. Like racism is wrong. Like totally, unequivocally wrong. Because to treat another person as less than less than human, as less than equally valuable because they're created in the image of God, as less than because of ethnicity or race is totally a violation of God's desire, God's design for us. I mean, we look at the beginning story we have in the opening pages of our Bibles and the scriptures in the book of Genesis, and we see that God did something incredible with us as a human race, that that we're told that 
however he formed us and created us, he did something in us he did with nothing else in creation. He breathed into us his breath of life. That's when we became living beings. And we're told that he did that for us as a race so that we would be made in his image. And being made in God's image, we would have inherent, intrinsic value as people that would reflect him, his beauty, his goodness, his truth to the world around us and to one another. That when we would see each other, we would see God in us. And then when we walked away from God in that beginning story, I mean, things broke, fundamentally broke in us and in the world around us. And and so even though there should be intrinsic value seen and expressed to every single one of us, it doesn't mean that we get it right. It doesn't mean that we will always treat each other as equally valuable. I mean, we just look at the history of the human race and we have a pretty tragic track record of treating others who are different than us as less than, less than valuable. And that leads to all sorts of ugliness and oppression in the, in the world. It leads to the racism we're seeing in our country right now. It leads to the oppression of injustice and inequality that other people are experiencing. And none of that is a reflection of God's desire for us toward one another. It's a violation of what it means to be human together. And I think what God would want us to understand is that He created us for something better than that. And He actually desires better from us toward one another than that. And if we ever want to understand what God's heart for us is, we look at what he's shown us on the pages of the scriptures as he reveals himself to us and and his desire and intention for us. And on the pages of that book, we we find some simple words in in the book of Micah, Micah 6, 8. We read these words. It says this. It says that he, that God has shown you, O mortal, like don't forget you're a created being, O mortal, what is good? What does the Lord require of you? And he lists three things, to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. And those are beautiful things that God wants to call us into. And if we can begin to operate in them, I think we can actually make a difference in the world around us and the way things are going. Because to walk humbly with God is to have a proper view of ourselves, where we don't have a a low or undervalued view of us as people or a human being or my own sense of self-worth, but I don't also have a hyper-inflated view of myself that somehow I think I'm superior or better than others because I'm walking humbly with God. God is God. He is superior. And my identity flows from that relationship with Him that allows me to have a humble confidence about who I am that doesn't need to put other people down. And the other, the second thing He says is to love mercy. Mercy is a beautiful thing. It's, It's when... You're not given what you deserve if you've messed up or blown it. It's, it's when you're given grace. It's when you're given goodness in your life because you need help. Listen, I think we all love mercy when we need it. The problem is we don't always love mercy when other people need it from us. And yet if we can begin to love mercy, I think it lets us step into the spaces of forgiveness in our relationships with each other and, and walk into a better future with each other. And then the first thing that he says he desires from us is that we would act justly. That's a powerful idea. That means to to desire justice, to desire what is good and right for the benefit of another person. 
But I don't know if we can always get that right because I think sometimes our desire for justice can misfire and, and in our desire to get justice for another person, we can actually do unjust things. We can actually become oppressors. We can actually do things in the name of justice that are vengeful and vindictive and we don't always get it right. And yet if we understand these things that God is desiring from us, I think it can give us a healthy framework of how we can move forward, especially justice, because justice is what's needed now. But I think we need to have a good understanding of what justice looks like. And so I want to take a moment and let's watch this video together of the Bible Project, these guys that put together all this information to help us understand how these neat things are portrayed in the scriptures and the, the Bible that we have. And they do a really good job of unpacking this idea of justice and what it looks like and how God wants to move into the story we're all living in and lead us into being people who can bring justice. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed 
gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free. But he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. There's something so powerful and beautiful about having an understanding of this justice that God wants to bring into the world, bring to us, and bring through us to people around us. But the challenge, I think, is that we're still living in a world that's broken, and, and we're all in desperate need of God's justice in our story, His, His justice that will restore us and bring us the grace and mercy that we need this gift of Jesus that he wants to bring to every single one of us to help us overcome the brokenness that we're all caught up in, the brokenness that's in us and around us. Because there are times when we are caught up in the brokenness because of what others have done to us, the harm they've brought into our stories. But if we're going to be honest, there's times where we're participants in the brokenness, bringing hurt and harm to other people. And yet, despite all the brokenness, I think God is still calling us into our creation identity to become people once again who can act justly and love mercy and walk humbly. And so as we look at the racial 
tensions that are going on in our world today? Like, what is God stirring in you? How is he shaping you to respond? I mean, how is he stirring you and moving you to be a person who would respond in a much better way, to be a person who would act justly and would love mercy and would walk humbly? See, because in the midst of the racial tension that we're experiencing, I think that's what Jesus wants to begin to do. He wants to show up in our story. He wants to lead us into this new life he has for us and restore us into the creative people we were meant to be so that we can reflect him in the world around us. And see, I think Jesus does have a response he would desire from us. I think he wants to shape us into people who would do justice and love mercy and walk in humility. But before we can let him do that, before we can let him shape us and speak into our lives, I I think we have to be willing to be honest with how we're feeling and reacting to things right now. So I want to take us to what I think Jesus would want to call us to. But first, I want to wrestle with you with maybe where your heart is at in this moment. If that's okay. (laughs) See, I want to approach this by interacting with some words that I think evoke something in us. Three words that have become the, the, the rally cry or the outcry of what people are experiencing and are caught up in right now. Three words that I think can trigger all sorts of reactions in all sorts of people on all sides of this equation. And here are the words. Black lives matter. So what do those words evoke in you when you hear them? Because I think if we're willing to listen to what's going on inside of us, it might give us a sense of where we need to let Jesus meet us and guide us. I'm not going to presume to speak for you when you hear those words, but let me just share with you how those words have impacted me and what my heart has reacted to with those words over the years as they've been a cry that have come up. As I hear the words, Black Lives Matter, here's how I've responded at times. Three responses. The first is this, well, of course, all lives matter. And yes, that's a true statement, but I think it totally misses the point of what these words are trying to say, that in this time, there is a specific group of people who are experiencing a total different reality than the majority who need their voice elevated so they can have the justice, the help they need. I mean, it'd be sort of like if um, you were hanging out at the beach, you and I were hanging out at the beach and we were there with a friend, Bob, and Bob went out swimming and you and I are hanging out on the comfort of the beach, drinking our Mai Tais, and we're totally unaware that Bob's getting caught up in a riptide and he's just sucked in and somebody yells, Bob needs a lifeguard. And we look and we see Bob struggling. It would be rather weird if you and I looked at each other and go, well, yeah, everyone needs a lifeguard because that would miss the point. The point isn't that lifeguards aren't for everyone. It's that in this moment, Bob's the one who needs help. And see, I think this response that I've had, well, yeah, but all lives matter, kind of reveals a blissful ignorance within me that needs to be appropriately challenged. To be challenged if I'm truly going to understand and care about what others are experiencing. But there's a second reaction that I've had over the years in my own journey and understanding when I hear those words. And here's the second reaction. Okay, but it's not my problem. 
Man, do you, do you know who gets to say something like that? The person who gets to say, well, it's not my problem, is the one who has been privileged to have never experienced racial injustice and inequality in their own story. Like this response results in a kind of detached indifference or a, a lack of concern for other people. I mean, it'd be like if we got off that ride with my daughter at that Disneyland ride and she's soaking wet and crying and I just looked at her and said like, well, sucks to be you, it's not my problem. Or worse, if I found out that the ride had been rigged in such a way that it had specifically targeted her so that the rest of us didn't get soaked, but she got soaked. And I said, well, I didn't build the ride, it's not my problem. I don't think that's a good response, one of indifference. And yet there's a third response that is oftentimes evoked within me when I hear those words, and it goes like this. But I'm not a racist. And see, I think what happens with that is it's a defensive response within me when I hear those words that somehow instead of hearing them as a cry for help, I hear them as words of indictment against me. And let me just tell you, God, I hope I'm not a racist. But I also know that I don't fully see myself in every part of me, which, which is why I got to be constantly asking God to show me who I am so that he can help me become more of who he set me free to become. But, but let's just go with the benefit of the doubt. Even if it's true that I'm not a racist, it wouldn't mean that racism still doesn't exist in our world or that systemic racism isn't at play that allows certain people to have advantages and other people to be oppressed or to be disadvantaged from the start. And see, getting defensive is never a helpful response because defensiveness only builds a wall between myself and the person who is crying out for help. And so when I consider these responses that I have wrestled with that have surfaced in me, I, I'm challenged because I don't think this is how Jesus would want me to respond to, to continue with blissful ignorance or detached indifference or just living with a defensive response. I don't think this is what Jesus would want me to respond with. And, and so maybe I need to be willing to wrestle with what's going on inside of me and ask Jesus to call me to something better. How about you? What do you think he's calling you to in this time? So because there's a danger if we're not willing to invite Jesus to come into our story and call us to better things. See, I think the danger of not allowing Jesus to speak into our hearts is that we can begin to look for loopholes that give us the excuse to not respond in ways that are helpful. Loopholes that excuse us from seeking to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. But I think if we will let him speak into us, if we will let Jesus shape us, Jesus is really good at closing those loopholes and leading us into a better response, leading us more deeply, more completely, more fully into a transformative love a love that's changing our lives and our story from the inside out, and that love flowing out to the world around us and bringing transformative change for the sake of others. So here's what I think Jesus would call us to. I think we see it in a story, in a conversation that he has in Luke chapter 10. This guy comes to Jesus, and he's kind of wanting to test Jesus, and he asks him this question. He says, Jesus, what's, what do I have to do to be right with God? And, and so Jesus says, well, how do you read the law? How do you read the things that God would want from you? What do you understand that to be? 
And so the guy responds, well, I, I think this is what it means to be right, to be good with God. He says that I should love God with everything I've got, with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind. He goes, and, and I think then that I should love my neighbor as myself. And Jesus' response is simple. He goes, yeah, that sounds right. See, because Jesus had already answered that question at another point in his life. In Matthew 22, somebody asked Jesus that question. Hey, what do I have to do be, to be right with God? And Jesus says the same thing. Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. This sums up everything that God wants for you. See, because in Jesus' mind, we can't say we love God but not love people because that's not how we were created. God designed us in love for love so we could love. And we love God and we love others and it's connected. And yet the guy hears what Jesus says, affirming his answer, and then he says this. He asks this question to Jesus. All right, Jesus, well then, who's my neighbor? And see what he's trying to do with that question? He's trying to look for the limitations. He's trying to look for the loopholes. Who do I not have to love as myself? Because if I can define neighbor in a way that's advantageous to me, I'm off the hook. I'm looking for the loophole. And in response to that, Jesus tells a story. A story that we've come to call the parable of the Good Samaritan. And so Jesus says, let me tell you a story. He says, there's a Jewish man, you know, somebody like you and me, because Jesus was Jewish, talking with Jewish people in his day. And he said, there's a Jewish man who was heading down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he gets jumped along the way. Some bandits come, they beat him up, they take all his clothes, they strip him, they leave him for dead on the side of the road. Not a good day for this guy. But fortunately, it doesn't take very long before one of the religious leaders comes walking along the road and sees the guy in trouble. But he just passes by and ignores him. But shortly after, another guy comes. Another good religious worker comes along the way and sees the guy but does the same thing. Ignores him and passes by. And then Jesus says, but a Samaritan comes walking along the road. Now, this is a fascinating thing that Jesus is doing because he's going to set the Samaritan up as the hero of the story. And for his day, Jews and Samaritans despised each other. There was prejudice, oppression, racial tensions between the two groups. And a lot of times it was the Jews who oppressed the Samaritans. And so Jesus is setting up the hero to be the Samaritan because he's twisting the guy's paradigms, trying to challenge his thinking. But he says the Samaritan comes walking along and sees the man in need and immediately stops and he bandages his wounds. He picks him up, takes him to the nearest inn, takes care of him and nurses him. He leaves the next day and tells the innkeeper, listen, I'm going to pay for all the expenses. Here's some money, whatever this guy needs. And as soon as he's healthy, send him on his way. And I'm going to come back and whatever debts are left unpaid, I'll pay them. And that's a radical expression of love. And so Jesus gets done telling the story. And he looks at the guy and he says, so now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by the bandits? And the man replied, the one who showed mercy. And then Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. See, I think that's what Jesus wants from us in this season, in this time. Go and do the same. Go and love your neighbor as yourself. And do not limit the definition of neighbor to people who are only like you. See, if we're going to take following Jesus seriously, we need to stop looking for the loopholes. And instead, we need to start looking for the opportunities to love our neighbors, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Now, I don't presume to have all the answers to what this could look like. 
But I think there's some things that we could begin to do that would begin to move us more fully into loving our neighbors as ourselves. I think there's a couple of things that we could just start doing right now. Here's the first that I think you and I can begin doing to help make things better. The first, it's simple. It's just listen and learn. My goodness, why don't we, instead of getting defensive or responding in ways that just show something kind of messed up in our, our, our own hearts, why don't we be willing to say, okay, I need to listen to the story you're saying right now. Because it's obvious you're experiencing something totally different than the life I've experienced. And I need to be willing to learn. You and I should be willing to learn about the ongoing realities of racism that still exist in our country today. And I think we should especially become informed about the concept of systemic racism and the damage it's done for generations. That's a step of learning to love our neighbors as ourselves and listening and learning will not only lead us into a better understanding of what others are experiencing, but it will awaken our empathy toward other people. And it will awaken our compassion for them. Just like the Samaritan had compassion on the guy who was beaten up on the side of the road and he was moved out of love to help him. And see, because I, I think that might be the second thing beyond just listening and learning, we need to begin to move and act on the benefit of others. And, and the second thing I think that we can do is this. We can begin to leverage our love. You can begin to leverage the love that you have for the benefit of people. Now that might sound high and, and conceptual, but it has application if we're willing to lean in and let Jesus show us what love could look like for the context that we're in. But here's the beautiful thing about leveraging your love. You and I can have significant love when we've stepped into God's love for us. Because there's something powerful about experiencing God's love for us, this goodness that he's given us, Jesus showing up in our story saying, I'm for you, I love you, I've got a life for you. See, when we step into that new life Jesus has for us, we are given a sense of security in our identity because we know we're loved by God. And when we live in that place, of security and our identity, we can move into the uncomfortable places, the challenging conversations, because we're not threatened by the experiences of, of other people. Instead, we can move into those places seeking to bring good, to say, okay, what does it look like to act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly on behalf of this person whose story I'm discovering and learning? And so let me ask you a question that can hopefully help spark your imagination about what leveraging your love could begin to look like. Here's the question. If you were the one who was experiencing racism toward you, who was experiencing injustice and inequality, if you were the one who was beaten up and left on the side of the road as dead, what would you want someone to do for you? And as you think about that question, then hear the words of Jesus when he says, go and do the same. Because that's what loving your neighbor as yourself looks like. And see, this is a big problem that we're trying to figure out as a nation and 
we're going to need help on all sorts of levels, all sorts of ways. But just changing the systems and the structures alone, I don't think will solve the ultimate problem because this is a human issue. I think what needs to happen is that we need to let Jesus transform our hearts so that we begin to move out of his transformative love and bring that love to the people around us, to the world around us, because love is what will change the reality of what we're experiencing and the reality of what others are experiencing and allow us to move into a future together. And so as we try to figure this out, let's constantly be turning our eyes to God, going to our Father and saying, remind me of who I am, remind me of who you created to be so that I can be a person who will act justly, love mercy and walk humbly with you. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.